0: I'm glad you're here with us this morning. We've been looking into how how the scriptures define a biblically shaped church. And we're taking this from Paul's exchange of letter to Timothy. Now just for the briefest bit of background, we saw Timothy's name emerge in the book of Acts as a young man that, that not only was Paul mentoring, but a man that God was using to pastor and lead, among other leaders, the church in Ephesus. And so we see this progression of, of God taking the gospel through faithful people, through obedient people, from city to city and place to place. We see the power of the Holy Spirit just erupting and causing amazing things to happen in each of these cities, the strongholds for the kingdom of God get established, new churches are birthed. And here in this city, among many cities that were very pagan in nature, pagan in worship, Ephesus, this city that was all centered around, even its, its buildings and layout centered around, false worship, the goddess Diana. And here in this very pagan culture, this absolutely not post-Christian like we're increasingly living in, but pre-Christian culture, the gospel takes root, a church is born, and they begin to grow and develop. And so we can learn so much about what does it mean to be a church in less than ideal circumstances? What does it mean to be a church that from its very beginning is forged by what God says a church ought to be? I mean, going back to our roots, looks a lot like going back to first Timothy and so Paul's writing to Timothy about the church and making sure that it's shaped not by people's preferences not by traditions not by the culture for sure but by the scriptures that's the aim and so I want you to pray with me before we read this text together in chapter two that God will speak to us through it I mean what we really hear and you know pray this sort of bold prayer I have to pray this sometimes when I'm prepping for a message If I'm not careful, my default mode will be looking for things which already confirm my way of thinking. They will already validate my own perceptions or ideas. Pray that God would challenge any preconceived notion, any misguided perception, anything contrary to scriptures that might somewhere, somehow, be in your thought processes. It might somehow have become normalized for you. Pray that God's word and God's spirit would speak so clearly to those issues that you would say wow okay God all right then then I'm going to change the way that I think I'm going to change the way that I live because here's our aim we're not trying to be revolutionary we're not trying to create something new or or different but we want to be faithful always being turned back to and reshaped by the scriptures what does God wants to be as a people and so today we're going to talk about prayer so let's pray towards that end this morning Father, in these next several minutes that we have together, a time that might seem kind of ordinary and routine to us, but is anything but according to your word. We're doing what you've commanded. We're gathering as your word prescribes for us. We are your people. We've assembled assembled together. We want to hear the teaching of the apostles, the word that you have preserved for us, inspired to them. Written to these early believers and written for our sake as well, we want to heed them and be diligent, devoted in our response to them. And Father, we know that we don't come empty to this table. We come with preconceived ideas and notions and practices and preferences and just so many different things that sometimes, if we're not careful, can cloud our understanding and can crowd out right application. So, Father, I pray that you penetrate all those things through your word and by your spirit so we hear what you're saying to us. May we hear what you're saying to this church. And Father, may we increasingly be conformed to it, shaped by it. So, Father, teach us, but Father, again, as I pray so often, I pray that it wouldn't be just information. And we would do more than just agree with information. But, Father, that it would be obedience, that we would do what your word says. We would live it. We would enjoy it. We would experience it. Father, you'd be glorified by that. And we'd be blessed because of that. So, Father, show us what we, we ought to do. Empower us to do it. Give us the supernatural encouragement, motivation to do it. And may we be faithful to it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or or quarreling. Now let me set the stage for this to make sure that we understand it correctly because context is always critical um, to getting the text right. The context is this. We're not talking about prayer in general. We're not talking about every sort of praying. So I want to narrow the focus down to what the text is narrowing the focus to. We're not speaking specifically to, though there are some cross applications of principle, to your personal prayer life. What you might say so your prayer closet, your private prayer time with God, or to your family prayer life, your family worship, and those times together. What we're speaking to in this text is specifically the gathered church. When the church comes together, how does the church pray? How should the church, as God's people, collectively experience prayer? And we know this because of this overarching text in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul, where Paul writes to Timothy the purpose of the letter. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, everything in the letter has a a collective purpose. Now, obviously, again, I won't belabor the point, but it has individual application for sure. But what does the church do? And how should the church approach prayer? Now, listen to the way he words this words matter, every word matters. And he starts chapter two with this first of all then first of all then circle that word then maybe in your notes he's responding to what he said already up to this point the foundation to the absolutely essential non-negotiable support system to everything he said in chapter one is this in order for those things we want to see we're praying to see hoping to see hoping to experience in chapter one how do we do that we do that through prayer first of all then Pray. So, what sort of things are we praying for? Well, let's do a quick, let's do a quick review of what we saw in chapter one. First of all, he talks about faithful teaching. Prayer is the means of faithful teaching. Teaching and prayer are not disconnected things; they're absolutely necessarily connected things. How do we know that we're teaching faithfully? Well, obviously, we study the text, we work through the text, we try to understand its meaning to its original hearers, we try to understand its context. We look to the text for application, not just information, but we also do it with prayer. Remember what he said about teaching in chapter 1? Verse 3 and 4, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. Teaching the truth is a stewardship from God. God's truth loaned out to us now, given to us, so that we impart it to others. That's the essence of stewardship. One of the means that we ensure faithful teaching is through faithful praying. Praying is the means of that. So, for you, if you're a small group leader, if you're a D group leader, if you're a life group leader, if you teach preschoolers, if you teach senior adults, what is one of the means of staying between the guardrails of doctrinal truth and integrity? Praying. God, help me to see truth in this text. God, guard me from error. God, keep me out of the out of the weeds. Keep me on the path. And help me teach what's in accordance with the truth once and for all delivered to the saints. So, focus, prayerful preparation for teaching. Number two, prayer is a necessary means to finishing well. I mean, that's one of the themes in chapter one. Remember, he says certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from right teaching, what happened? They've wandered away. Verse 19, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, not heeding the warnings, Not paying attention to what other people have done or experienced before them. Not believing what they've been told. They've shipwrecked their faith. What's one of the means by which we guard ourselves from spiritual shipwreck? Spiritual wandering. How do we finish? Well, praying. We pray for one another. We pray that the truth would be taught. We pray that people together would understand, hear it, and do it. We pray that people would believe it with all their hearts and live it. We pray that... People would be secure in it till the very end. They would hang on to that truth and not abandon it. Prayer is a means to finishing well. Prayer is also a means to effective, and I use this word intentionally. I just kind of want to introduce the idea to you. Prayer is the necessary means to effective gospeling. Gospeling. Now, there are other words I could have used, and I'm not trying to be clever or anything here, but I want to use the word I think is most precise. When I say gospeling, it's this. It's taking the good news that we know and talking about it. Now listen, you know this is true. You know this is true personally. Let the conviction fall where it will. Things that you love, things that you enjoy are not hard to talk about. Would you agree? Things that you love, things that you enjoy, things that have been meaningful to you or beneficial to you, they're not hard for you to talk about. I was kind of convicted about this the other day. This is on Facebook, it's on social media and somebody had posted, you know how people do on social media, they want to query um, the populace there to help make important life decisions, right, you know, Um, and this important life decision was this, what sort of mattress should I get, and so somebody posted, you know, do any of you have a mattress that you like, and I think they posted this particularly about one particular brand, now listen, I get no compensation for any commercial statements I make up here, okay, I'm an unpaid spokesperson, but I immediately thought, oh man, You're speaking my language now because I've got one possession I value more than anything other. I've often said, and I kind of mean it until I was changing the sheets yesterday and realized how heavy this thing is. But if my house catches on fire, I'm dragging that Tempur-Pedic mattress out. (laughs) Because I don't sleep as well anywhere else as I do at home, and I love that mattress. So I quickly said, oh, man, you've got to get a Tempur-Pedic. There's nothing like it. This this will change your life. And I thought, man, here I am. I am the gospeling mattresses. (laughs) And some of you gospel food. And some of you gospel football." all right listen what we love what we enjoy but effective gospeling how is what makes it effective it's not just my affection for it it's not just my affinity for the topic or my excitement in it it's my praying about it in verse nine, he said the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient the ungodly and sinners you know we're telling people how to get saved saved from what saved from the very sins that law condemns you of people don't want to hear that who wants to hear about their sin Who wants to hear about their judgment before God? Who wants to hear about the sorry condition their life is in, and if you die, you're going to spend eternity in hell? No one wants to hear that. So what do you do? You pray. Pray, God, give them ears to hear. So as they hear the law and they feel the judgment and they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they deal seriously with what's in in their face, what's in front of them, judgment, condemnation, and hell, they will respond with repentance, not anger. They will respond with with faith, not not unbelief. We pray. Or verse 11, accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. I mean, listen to Paul's testimony. Look what I used to be. He's always expressing this in so many different contexts throughout Acts, in so many letters. Look at who I used to be. What is he saying here? Look at the kind of person that God saved here. You ever thought about that? The most unlikely of candidates for salvation. The most unlikely of candidates to be sitting next to you in church. The most unlikely of candidates to be standing in front of you talking about how good Jesus is. The very one that wanted to put to death any movement about him. This was me. How is someone like that ever going to get saved? I mean, you think of the guy you work with or your neighbor across the street or maybe it's somebody in your own family and they are the farthest person from God you can imagine. They're the most adamantly opposed. They're most easily offendable or the most angry in their responses to it. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of those are in your family. We've had these conversations. How in the world? What are you going to do? You're going to find some, some book that's going to do what no other book has been able to do for them? You, you're going to point them to some commercial that's running during during the NFL playoffs about how Jesus gets us and think that's going to do it? You're going to think of some new method or maybe there's some pastor out there that's got the magic bullet. If you can get them to watch their program or their service, maybe then I'm going to tell you it's prayer and you pray and you pray and you pray that God changes the heart, God changes the circumstances, God changes the readiness, God makes himself known in ways he hasn't, God sends people there that will bring the gospel to them. Listen, by the way, And I I praise those of you who feel a personal burden for the lost people that you know personally. And I, I want you to avail yourself of every opportunity. I mean, if that's your family, your son, your daughter, your neighbor, be the answer to your own prayer if you're praying for their salvation. But I also want to relieve you of some sense of personal responsibility for their response. God can send whomever he pleases. You may not be the one that will verbally be the one that will carry the gospel to them in a way they respond to. It may not be you, but you may be the one. You can be the one. You you should be the one that every day is lifting their name before the Father because it might be some nurse at the hospital. It might be some new friend they just met. It might be some book they picked up. It might be some source you've never even imagined, but God can do that, so we pray. Effective gospel requires prayer. How do you break through the former blasphemers, persecutors, opponents? Breakthrough through with prayer and finally prayer is a necessary means to spiritual warfare this is not a message on spiritual warfare specifically but what paul told timothy at the end of chapter one is this he said wage the good warfare you've got a spiritual enemy and you know what his number one strategy is i mean we know overall his primary tool or resource is deception he's a deceiver So, you know, he deceives us about the amount of power he has or the amount of influence he has or control he has. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And good deceivers do it in such a way that you don't know you're being deceived, right? The primary way he deceives us, so listen, for some of you or for the sake of some of you who have friends who are skeptics, the number one way he deceives people is by deceiving them about his existence, his activity. Satan doesn't care if you worship him. He just doesn't want you to worship God. He's not looking for an eternity of your affection. He's looking for an eternity of your destruction. And so if he can deceive you into thinking, look, there's no such thing as evil in in a personified form. There's no such thing as a spiritual enemy. He's already won. He's already winning. Listen, spiritual warfare, we wage war against the enemy in prayer. We pray down those strongholds. We pray down those grips that he has. We pray against things like addiction. We pray, we, we pray against things like our, our own behaviors that we're struggling with or, or those conflicts that we can't resolve or those situations we can't fix or those answers we don't have. We engage in spiritual warfare with praying. And the most emaciated spiritually, the, the, the most frail, the most vulnerable, the weakest Christian among us is the one who prays the least. The one who prays the least. So all these things are, are connected to it. So what's the message in all of this? In our lives together as God's people, in in our discipleship, how we help each other become more like Christ, just help each other towards godliness. That's all discipleship is. In our evangelism, how we're trying to communicate this message that at least on the surface, people want to hear less and less. In our spiritual warfare, how we engage the enemy, what comes first? Not in order of time or place, but in order of priority. What comes first? First of all, then, pray. 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 So at the very least, if you take nothing else away from the message, you're trying to live a godly life for yourself. You're trying to do what pleases God. What comes first in that pursuit? Prayer. I'm trying to reach this person, fill in the name. I want them to get saved. I want them to hear what I'm saying. I want them to know what I know and trust what I trust and have what I have. What comes first? Praying. I feel like I'm under oppression from the enemy you know, I'm in this battle and I, you know, I'm dealing with confusion or discouragement or depression or I've got this conflict. or What comes first in that? Prayer. Prayer is first and priority, and that's the issue. Now, let's look to some very specific things in the text about practical praying collectively as a church, as a church prays practically. Well, lesson number one is fairly obvious. What does he say? All kinds of praying should be done for all people. All kinds of praying should be done for all people. Who doesn't need prayer? Let's make sure I get this grammatically correct. Who doesn't need prayer? Nobody doesn't need prayer. Is that right? No, let's try it this way. Everybody needs prayer. Would you agree? Everybody. Now listen, I know sometimes people are not going to want you to pray for them. That, weirdly enough, I found rarely, but it has happened, where I say, hey, you know, can I pray for you? Man, I don't want anybody praying for me. You know what? Didn't stop me. <laughs> Everybody needs prayer. And the kind of praying they need is all kinds of praying. And so, this text is it, instead of us trying to break down minutiae of each of those words there, it just simply means we're talking about specific needs. What kind of praying do people need? They don't need generic praying. And I'm going to try to keep this in the positive, okay? I'll pray for you. Somebody shares with you a need. Oh, man, I'll pray for you. Okay, one of two things are probably going to happen there. Tell me I'm wrong. One of two things. I'll pray for you. I never pray for you. I forgot. I saw you again a week later at church, and I told you i pray for you. As I'm walking up to you, dear God, bless Bob. Hey, Bob, I've been praying for you. <laughs> right? Either we don't pray for them or we pray for them generically. What this passage is about is specific needs. And this is where community comes in. This is where getting to know one another and having lives that intersect with one another. This is where real conversations foment real community and prayer. You can't do this sort of thing if you don't know anybody. And you can't do this well if you only know some somebodies. A handful of people in your small group or Sunday school class or a little group of people that you associate with, the people you always sit around. The ideal for a church community is that we're getting to know each other and we're praying. And sometimes, you won't know specifically, sometimes it'll be a need that'll be shared, and we share it with everybody. And part of our commitment to one another as a body of Christ is that guy who got up and shared that or that need that was shared in front of everybody, even though I don't really know them, I'm going to pray for them. And as you begin to pray for people in ways we can't even really measure, you certainly can't quantify this, relationships are being forged. Community is happening. So we're talking about specific needs. We're talking about specific needs brought before God. So we're saying to someone, Ben, I'm going to to take that to the Father. Confession. Here's my confession. I'm not talking about confession as prayer. I'm talking about personal confession. Maybe it's just a a result of a, a long time trying to give people counsel or people asking me for advice or things. Maybe it's just a bad personal habit as a fixer. My first inclination when someone shares a need with me or a struggle with me or a problem with me, my first inclination is to give counsel or advice. It's to give counsel or advice. My first inclination ought to be to pray for them. And it's okay for me, and I hope you'll accept this as an answer at some point because it's going to come to you perhaps. I don't know how to help you. I'm not sure what to tell you. I'm not sure how to fix that, but I promise you I will pray for you. And that's necessary for all of us. Prayer, specifically brought before God, with bold appeals. That's what's behind that word, bold. It's bold appeals when we're praying supplications, prayers, intercessions is a bold appeal. Listen, I will take that need, and by God's grace, by the, by the availability afforded me by Christ, I will take your prayer to the very throne of God. And I remember when we were, when we were in Rome... And we visited the Vatican. And we went to the cathedral there and the seat of St. Peter. And you've probably seen this. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've probably seen it on TV. And there's this huge statue of St. Peter. And the feet are just, you know, they're so worn down, rubbed down. um, Look like none of the rest of the statue. And people believe that if they can come and touch it, kiss it, most of them kiss it, if they can deliver a prayer there in that spot, that via St. Peter, that prayer specifically will make it all the way to God. Peter will take it himself. I mean, obviously, it's idolatry and it's paganism in some Christianized form. I and mean, You don't need to go to Rome and be in the middle of the Vatican and kiss the foot of a statue for God to hear your prayer. You just have to be humble and sincere and repentant of your sins. And he hears us. So we pray, and that's the sort of praying. That's the intercession. It's the bold praying, taking it. It's the bold praying that we take before God, and we do it with thankfulness. I learned this lesson in prayer, and I wish I could remember the pastor to attribute it to, but it's been super helpful for me. It's helped me at least be cognizant of how I ought to be praying, and that's to pray my thanksgivings in advance. I pray a lot of thanksgivings in advance. If you guys are praying with me and we're praying collectively, you're probably going to hear me say this. It's not just a matter of rote. Um, or routine it's just that helps me focus on praying with faith God I'm going to thank you in advance for how you're going to answer this prayer I'm going to thank you in advance I know you hear me and I know you will do what is best in every way I know you will glorify yourself I'm going to pray a thank you in advance and so this idea of praying with thankfulness just be careful that in your prayers you don't leave thankfulness until the end because one we sometimes don't say thanks we forget. We move on to new requests, new prayers, and we don't come back. I try to. I'm not great at it. I try to write down my specific prayers, and I try to write down the ways God has answered them. So I keep track because my memory's slipping. But I also say thanks in advance. God, by faith, I thank you that, I, that in somehow, some way, you're going to do something here in concert with your will and in concert with what's good for us. So that's the idea. Lesson number two. We should be praying for our leaders. Agreed? Parentheses, write this down. Even for the pagan ones. Now, this is, this is convicting. It a, sorry, I'm dropping out there. It doesn't take a deep dive into the text to see that the sort of leaders that they would have been praying for when Paul wrote this were pagan leaders. These were Roman Caesars who thought they were gods. These were Caesars who would soon begin stamping out Christianity with great violence. They were praying for those people. You and I should be praying for our leaders. As I went through this text, trying not to just go through the motions of drawing its truths out to regurgitate them to you, I felt personal great conviction about this. Praying for our president, praying for our vice president praying for our Congress, praying for our leaders. We know one thing, biblically, government is of God. We're not anarchists. We believe God establishes government. We believe that God establishes government for good. Government, rightly applied, is a common grace. And as much as you and I, and this is not a political discourse this morning, as much as you and I might have fundamental and real disagreements with our government, I've learned that sometimes those disagreements are a bit relative because I would rather live under this deeply flawed, immoral government that we exist under now than some of the government that I saw when we were in India, than some of the governments that are now exerting power in, in Africa and other places around the earth. We should be praying for our leaders, even the pagan ones. And what is the aim of this? Consider a couple of texts. 1 Thessalonians 4, through 12. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's not a bad prayer to pray. I I want to be able to live a quiet, peaceful life. I want to be able to earn an income. I, I want to be able to have a good relationship with my neighbors. I want to be able to live freely. Isn't that what we want? We should be praying towards those ends. Or in the Old Testament, Consider the nation of Israel frequently under the authority of, under the the control of, the domination of pagan governments living in exile and even slavery at times. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Part of that's deeply theological, part of that's just commonsensical. I want to pray to live in a peaceful place. I want to pray where justice happens, where goodness is done. I want to pray where where things are handled correctly and properly, where people are led well. And I made this note to myself. You do with this as you please for yourself. When we're not praying for our leaders, now maybe this is just me, when we're not praying Mm -hmm. for our leaders, we tend towards bitterness towards our leaders or mockery of our leaders. I realized in the last couple years I'm far more likely to pass on a mocking meme of our government, our president or vice president, that I am to say a heartfelt prayer. Or we grow angry towards them, or resentful of them, or frustrated about them. Or even worse, we start to get despairing because of them. And this is not an either-or. I'm convinced more and more the longer I live that Christians need to be the most active citizens in any country. We have to be. We have to be the voices of reason and truth. We we have to be the ones involved in the processes and speaking up and being involved. We have to be out there. We have to be out there. But that doesn't preclude and it's not in opposition to or in place of praying. We need to be praying. We need to be praying that righteousness is done and right decisions are made and our freedoms to worship God are protected and we're able to to share the gospel, and we're able to gather freely and all these things, but we should be praying, and that's what that text is about. Practical praying means collectively, and when we gather, we should be praying for our, for our leaders. Lesson number three, we should be praying that people everywhere are saved. That seems so obvious. I, I'm probably giving you the most simple outline of a message possible, but what's so obvious sometimes is so undone by us. We should be praying with a Local and global evangelistic mindset—it just ought to be part and parcel of uh, part and parcel of our prayers, because we know that God works for His intended ends. God is sovereign in salvation, but we know that God works means towards those ends. How does God reach people? How are people's minds changed? How are their hearts regenerated? How does belief and faith get birth in a person? It's what I said earlier, we're praying for those things. We're praying for the salvation. And the scripture says in this text, this sort of praying pleases God. That you and I would stand up and say, God, save our neighbors. Save the lost in our city. Save those lost in our cities, around our nation. And in those places where we go and minister, we can pray particularly. We pray with our missionaries in that five-city Muslim belt in the center of India that some 20 million Sheikh Muslims would hear the gospel and respond to it. We pray for our mission partners in places like the Northeast, centered out of Vermont, going into New Hampshire and Maine and beyond, that what once was an anchor for the gospel in America is now devoid of the gospel, that people would hear it again and respond to it. We pray that as we send teams to places like Portland or New Orleans, that there are people would hear and respond. We pray for salvations. We should be praying all the time for these salvations. It pleases Him. Real quickly, look at what the text says, and I'll just give you a quick overview. Why, do, why does this please God? Well, when we pray for salvation, one, we're affirming the universal offer of salvation. In our praying, we should affirm that, the universal offer of salvation. Who cannot be saved? Well, the Bible offers salvation To all, we make this message known to all, so we tell it to Muslims, we tell it to Hindus, we tell it to secularists and atheists, we tell it to de-churched and unchurched, and everything and every point in between. It also affirms God's decisive ability to save anyone. Why are we praying? Because we believe that God, by His divine work and initiative, can save anybody. I guess over... 30 years or so of ministry, one of the most common prayer requests I've gotten from church families is people in their own families. I pray with confidence and just keep praying. Again, it may not be your voice any longer. It may not be your methods anymore, but continue to be your prayers. Keep praying. It also affirms as we pray that we affirm the exclusivity of Christ. This is doctrinal praying. Why does this please everyone? I mean, again, listen to the words of the text. He desires all people to be saved, come to knowledge of the truth. Why? Why should we pray for the salvation of people living in India who have a religion? Or the people living in Africa who have a religion? Or the people living wherever? Why should we pray? Because the scripture says so. Because there's only one God, not thousands. There's only one mediator between God and man. Only one means of salvation, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And that's our testimony. So why do we do this? Because he's the only way. We share it because he's the truth, and there is no other way. It affirms the exclusivity of Christ. And number four, we pray this way because it empowers our mission to everyone. Prayer is what empowers it. We're going in the power of prayer, God who's sending us. And As I mentioned just a moment ago, this sort of praying, evangelistic praying, God, I'm I'm praying that you will save them. I'm praying that upon our obedience, because it doesn't happen without As we share the gospel, as they hear it, that they would respond to it, be saved by it. This sort of praying is the necessary means to God's sovereign ends. So for some of you who are prone or tend to or have heard this particular text used as a a proof text for one particular vein of soteriology, sometimes those who would claim a more Arminian bent to the scriptures would say, here's a proof text that defends more of an Arminian way of thinking, a universal atonement. An Arminian position would be Christ died for each and every soul who ever lived in the same way. But we know that's not true because not all people go to heaven. Not all people are saved. We don't believe in universalism. We don't believe that everyone is affected by the death of Christ in the same way. So what does this text mean? When when the scripture says God desires all men to be saved, I don't want to take a deep dive into this just for time's sake, but I will certainly open this up to other conversations with you. Sometimes all means different things in the text. For instance, I would say you use the word all in this context in the same way it's used at the beginning of the text. Who should we pray for? When the church is being instructed to pray, who should we pray for? All people. That doesn't mean, and I'm not being sarcastic, that doesn't mean when we gather to pray as a church, we pray for all seven and a half billion people. It means all people. Are there any types of people we won't pray for? No. Is there any any type of person that we wouldn't share the gospel with? No. This means all people in that that sense. The question is this when the Bible says that Christ died for all men, does it mean that he died for all of them in the same way? Again, the answer to that is, is no, because everyone is not saved. We know this. We know the judgment text. We know. We know of the promises of salvation to those who believe, which is unique to them. All doesn't necessarily mean each and every one. Sometimes it just means all kinds, and that's what this text is about. It's in verse 4, he desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, it's a ransom for all. It also the same in verse 1, prayers for all. Again, we're not commanded to pray for every person name by name, but to pray for all kinds of people, and that's what he's talking about. And also know in Scripture, when we see the will of God, we understand there's a distinction between what God desires and what God decrees. There's God's will of desire. I'll give you an example. God's desire is that we all, um, that we all refrain from, avoid sexual immorality. The Bible says that, that. We should all flee sexual immorality. Do we all flee sexual immorality? No, we don't. Not even in this room. But that's God's will. That's his will of desire. And that's God's will of desire. God's desire so people would turn to him. His will of decree is what will absolutely most infinitively happen every time for no one can thwart him. God does whatever he wills, whatever he pleases. No one can stop him. Understand those different things. So people have to hear the gospel. They have to respond to the gospel. And what we do as we teach and wait that response is pray. We're prayerful about the gospel. Lesson four. We should be praying every time we pray with integrity. He says at the end in verse 8, I I say that men everywhere should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me just say this for a moment. This is a segue to next week, so you come back and hear this part next week. He's not saying that collectively in the church only men pray. We know we have other texts that speak of women praying in church. This is a general statement. It's not about only men can pray in church. Don't read that into the text. We have other texts that make that clear. This is one of those transferable words of people. And he says this, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We also shouldn't interpret that text as a description or or a prescription, I should say, of how we should pray all the time. In other words, that the position of prayer should always be standing or sitting with hands up. Sometimes we pray with bowed knee. Sometimes we pray on our faces before God. Sometimes we pray sitting or standing. It's not that positional description that he's describing here. What he's actually talking about is a condition of the heart. The command is not about our hands and their position. It's about the purity of our hearts. He's talking about when you pray. When you pray, your hearts are right with God. It's what kind of hands? Holy hands. What sort of praying does God respond to? You heard the scriptures read and the prayers prayed this morning when Tyler was here, and he was praying those prayers of repentance and then hearing that, that affirmation of scripture that when we repent of our sins, we are forgiven of them. In that repentant heart, remember David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The greatest limiter to our prayers collectively and personally it's not that we don't know exactly how to pray or that we stumble and stammer with our words or that we pray incompletely or even that we pray without enough faith those are not our greatest limiters the greatest limiters to our prayers is that we pray with sinful hearts we pray as the person described in the book of James who is a spiritual adulteress we're coming to to God like a Spouse comes to her husband asking for things, saying, you know, will you give me money? Will you do this for me? Only so that she can use it with some other man, some other place, some other thing. We come to God asking him for things to do things for us when with our lives or with our resources, with our time, we don't honor him. We don't please him. We don't choose him. We we abuse the things he's done. We can't do that. This is talking about praying with integrity. I'm coming to God as best I can, asking him to examine my heart, confessing the sins that I know I need to confess, and lifting up that prayer with integrity that I pray with holy hands. And remember what he says here. He he elaborates on what a holy hand looks like without anger or quarreling. Did you catch that part? (coughs) Excuse me, without anger or quarreling. This doesn't mean don't come to God angry at him, fighting with him. Hey God, you you and I got to settle this beef. No, no, all of a sudden the language shifted from the vertical plane to the horizontal one because this is about church life. This is about our collective life together. He's talking about this purity that we have. It has to be both ways. It has to be holiness in the vertical. Am I right with God when I pray? That's the first question. Not am I praying for the right things or am I praying in the right way or do I, am I praying with enough faith? Am I right with God? That's most critical. Well, that's first and then the second question is, am I right with the people around me, my brothers and sisters? Because this is what God has made me. He's made me into a spiritual family with all of these people. He's united me into one body. And I have to be right with them. I have to pray with, with holy hands also without, without quarreling and angry. If I've got conflicts and discord here on this level, I, I'm told to fix those, restore those, deal with those, be forgiving of those or seek forgiveness in those so that I can pray. And those are the lessons in prayer. So let's consider those just real quickly together for a moment. When we pray, we pray with integrity, with our hearts made right, not just with our hands up, with our hearts made right. When we gather to pray, we should be praying for the salvation of those that we know that are lost. When we pray, we should be praying for all of our leaders, the ones we agree with or disagree with. But this is a command of God and it's for our good. And when we pray, we should be praying for all types of people everywhere and all their needs. So I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads with me this morning. We're going to spend just a few moments together in prayer. And then we're going to sing a song of response together. As we pray together, I want to begin by praying for the lost. as you think of those in your own life your own family your own circle of influence that are lost will you speak their names to the Father even now as we pray speak of them to the Father even now take those names to Him Father I pray for the loss that we know around us those ones that we're trying to have conversations with the neighbor we're trying to to communicate the good news to hoping he'll respond to it. That that family member who's heard it so many times and s- still rejects it. That that person I'm trying to figure out what to say the first time to that seems so far away from you? Or maybe even that person I perceive as my enemy that so needs you? Are those people that you've given me influence over their lives in? And I can be a a voice of truth to them. I pray for them today. Father, hear these names that we lift up to you. Specific. We make intercession for their salvation. Father, in a broad way, I pray for our missionary laborers who are sharing the good news person by person and as opportunity is given place to place. Sometimes in large gatherings, often not. Often over tea or sitting at a table in a house. Father, we pray for the fruits of their labor. We pray for those churches in our community today that are gospel-centered and preaching the good news today. We pray for the salvation of people throughout the wiregrass here in the good news. Father, I pray for those people in this room today. I don't dare assume the salvation of everyone. I pray that those who are not saved that sit in this room today would experience the power of your Holy Spirit convicting them, changing the way that they think, granting them repentance unto faith today so that in humble surrender they come to you. Say, save me. Father, save me. Save me a sinner. Forgive me. Give me new life. Put your spirit in me. Make me new. Father, save those among us. Father, I pray that we would grow in our intimacy and community so that we would pray better, more frequently, more intentionally, more specifically for each other. Lord, I thank you for that that happens already in so many of our smaller group gatherings, our life groups and things. Pray that it would happen across the span of our congregation, across the members. that More and more we would know each other and know how to lift each other up in prayer. And Father, I pray for those in leadership over us as we live in turbulent times which seem often and increasingly antagonistic even towards our faith. It seems as if we're being crowded out, opposed, Father, there's a lot of concerns that we have. And if we're honest before you, fears, worries. Father, we pray with those that are elected over us, whether we voted for them or did not, that you would turn their hearts and minds towards pleasing you, that your law would prevail, your timeless moral laws would prevail. We pray that they would value what you value, and they would fear violating your commands. Father, we pray that you would guide their thinking and their decisions. Father, we pray that you would protect for us a freedom of living and working and earning. Pray that you would protect life here from conception through through your ordained death for them father we pray that you would show us specifically and guide us into the right sort sort of praying set us free from the the bitterness and the resentment, the anger father move through our praying I pray father show us what to do in our praying, show us how we can be obedient show us how to live and act and respond and do Father, may we remain confident of you. This is your world. There is no competitor for your sovereignty. We appeal to you as king of heaven and earth to do what you see fit in every way through us. We pray that your name would be hallowed here on earth as is in heaven. That's what we pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray those things. And, Father, I pray that each of us would seek you with pure hearts. We know that we're covered by the blood of Christ. It's not our personal holiness or, or perfections that enable an audience with the King. It's, it's Jesus who has done that. So we thank you for your Son and our Savior who has enabled us to come before you. But, Father, may we never presume upon your grace coming to you with unrepentant sin. With hands up calling out to you, but with hearts far from you. With lips saying one thing, but lives saying something else. Father, may that not be us. Father, may may we be a people of integrity who seek you and pray expectantly with integrity. Father, may biblically shaped praying mark us. May it be our norm, our habit, our culture your glory, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.